0: Welcome back to the Comfy Chairs. After an unplanned hiatus, we got COVID, I'm back with the second installment of my conversation with Michelle about Susan Cain's wonderful book, Bittersweet. We ended the last episode talking about how music and concerts can evoke euphoria and sadness in us, or bittersweetness. And they can even provide a display of great leadership. So we'll pick up there and start the conversation turning to one of my favorite subjects, creativity. Susan Cain opens this book talking about music. Mm -hmm. The cellist of Sarajevo, Mm -hmm. Leonard Cohen.
1: Yes, oh yes, yes.
0: Goes on to continue to talk about creativity and how Mm -hmm. we can turn loss and sorrow into art and defining art in a broad term. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be... You know, painting, or drawing something, or even um, music, but that creative offering, this idea that the thing that hurts you points you in the direction of where you should right. look for purpose. Isn't that
1: one of the, what's the question that she asks about that is, how does this, how, yeah, she asks a question like, what do you do? How do you I don't know. I don't remember what the question is. Let me go see if I can find it. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about though, right? That she. Yeah. Yeah. What do you make with that? Or what do you. Yeah.
0: I know I'm, I marked that. I know I made some notes about that one. Yeah. I don't, I can't remember now. Yeah. She's talking about Leonard Cohen. And a relationship he had. Marianne. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever pain you can't get rid of, he seemed to say, make it your creative offering. Yes.
1: What is your creative
0: offering? That's Mm -hmm. what it is.
1: Yeah. What is your creative
0: offering? Yeah. And there's. Again, let me see if I can find this particular note. Uh, This is in the conversation about Sufism. Sufism. Longing is the core of the mystery. Longing itself brings the cure. Mm,
1: mm
0: -hmm, Yes. And the note I made for myself is the sense of longing points us to that for which we long. Yes. Um, I love, I actually really love the idea that that pang, our sorrow, our desire, it can be the map, the compass that brings us to our purpose. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think about, uh, because one of the things I want to make certain that we talk about, you know, for people, I would say like us, going back to what we talked about earlier um, in our warm-up times who are intent on living and working with purpose. Mm Mm-hmm what does all of this, what does bittersweet have to teach us? Right.
1: I mean, I think there, there's so many lessons in the book and I probably can't recommend it enough, but I definitely think that the bittersweet, as she calls it, you know, the longing and the, the melancholy, the, the bittersweet is, is, It is probably that which we should reward in ourselves and others more than we do. Mm -hmm. We don't reward it in leadership. It's not typically rewarded in leadership. Uh, We don't reward it in ourselves. We try to beat it down like we talked about, like get rid of fear, get rid of anger. Can we shut out disgust and sadness? Just go away. Um, I think that's, I, I mean, thematically, I think that's probably one of the big lessons is, is embracing the bittersweet as opposed to repelling it, which is mm-hmm. the
0: inclination of this society. Um yeah, well it's you know, she defines longing mm-hmm. for us. And the mental image it gave me was a vine growing. You know, because it's mm-hmm. that idea of, you know, growth towards something, mm-hmm. reaching. Yep. Making long mm-hmm. to get to a goal or a thing and that our sorrow and our longing teach us how to grow. Yeah. In a way that success can't. Right. Fear can't. Um, and that, you know, if we're going to believe John F. Kennedy, leadership and learning are indispensable to each other. Right. So if longing is the thing that drives growth, leaders need to embrace, acknowledge, and even pursue longing and sorrow. Right.
1: Yeah, and I think the way that you have to move through that is through that creative offering. Because mm-hmm. there is, with the longing comes, I, I believe, when you acknowledge the longing you then desire to know what do I do? What action do I take? Mm -hmm. And I think about um, COVID, right? The pandemic. And besides the taskiness that we did working in healthcare of we got to do this command center or, you know, do all these things to, to figure out what we do well and how we get how we move through this. There was also this personal, so the work side was one thing, but then there was this personal side of me of like, what do I do? And I remember it acutely after 9-11, like, what do I do now that this thing has happened? What Mm. is the action that I take? And for me, and I was going to ask you, what is your creative offering? Like, can you think of what it, do you know what it is? Because I think this book talks frequently about music and art and poetry and um, none of those things are necessarily, I'm not an artist like you are um but i think for me my creative offering is food and yeah. feeding the people <laughs> right i mean it is this like
0: yeah come michelle, over michelle sh- showed up <laughs> for this michelle came to the comfy chairs with a fresh baked loaf of bread <laughs> <So> <laughs> right she is that is right. her creative offering is. for and which i am grateful <laughs> i don't know that it's good bread but it's bread <laughs> so i will eat it all thank you
1: um but yeah. So what would you say? Like when you sense your longing and I know that you are an artist, I've been the recipient of some of your art for which I am impeccably grateful. Um, what, what would you say is like when you have that longing, what is your creative offering?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. I've been trying to define that self define that for myself in, you know, having read this thinking about our time together. Um, I think if I think in the space of like a visual art, um, it's it's my home. It's the space mm-hmm. that I welcome people into. It's the comfy, it the comfy chairs. It is the comfy chairs. It is the comfy chairs. Yeah, it's the you know, it's the tavern. Yes, know, our home bar, yes. like h- hospitality. Yes. is probably it's- a way to talk about it. Are people comfortable? Mm-hmm. Can I give you a space that feels light and safe and friendly yes um i think professionally though which is where i've been trying to focus my thoughts on this it's actually not that dissimilar it's can i offer people with whom i work a sense of belonging Mm -hmm. can i make you feel safe yes so that all the the vulnerable icky bits of being human are okay
1: yeah well, it's interesting that you say that because what I said my creative offering was is food, and 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 that's true. Except that it's not really the food as much as it is, as it is the connection. Because yeah. I, what I what my creative offering is is community. Yeah, it's community. Oh and, yes, right. It is. and so I think one of the things that I did early on in the pandemic was how can I help? You know it's the, what can I do? Like I have this Mm -hmm. longing to, for this to be better. So what do I do? And so I signed up for this organization called lasagna love, which is a great organization um, where you make lasagna for people who are in need of a meal. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to love it. it. There's no, like I don't. And I signed up and so I made lasagna, but you get matched with somebody or a family and you get information about them. You know, how many adults, how many kids, and then you bring them lasagna and, um, the one thing about it is you don't ever connect. You don't ever have any contact with them.
0: Oh, you did. That didn't do it for you. did No.
1: It? Mm-mm. So I, I did it once. And then I was like, I only can give people lasagna if they come to my house and eat it. Um, I can't mm-hmm. just, I can't. And, and it's a great organization because some people, for some people, their creative offering is food mm-hmm. and they, they don't want, they want to drop food off at people's house and leave. And that's, mm-hmm. it's awesome. Right. Cause if you need a lasagna, someone's bringing you a lasagna. That's not what I have to offer. I will offer lasagna, but with it comes community.
0: Yeah. Well, I, after George Floyd was killed, Mm -hmm. you invited people to your home. Yes. And it was, it was during the height of the pandemic. So you sat outside in a circle. Yep. I remember you talking about this in passing. It, like you talked about it, like it wasn't even a big deal. Being like, that is so amazing. Yeah. That you brought people of different races together. As the thing you could do. You created a community to talk about the pain of that awful thing in our nation. Yeah. And several
1: of those women I'm still friends with. Like, they're, you know, yeah. they're And they were people I didn't know. They were like, oh, this person would love to talk to you about this. Or this person would love to talk to you about this. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And I think when you talk about that, like, the hospitality and the sense of belonging and the that's I mean the language is different but it's a similar sentiment as a leader like is come to my house to the tavern sit in the comfy chairs and talk to me
0: hang out with the cats you Mm -hmm. know so yeah well and it's I I, what I think is interesting you and I have spent a lot of time talking about the differences between introverts and extroverts Mm -hmm. and thinkers and perceivers Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know judging and (laughs) and uh all the bits yep. as Myers-Briggs mm-hmm. nerds and um, you know the way it plays out you, know, you with your ENFP mm-hmm. it is about you know presenting your values and creating community and I value those things but as an INTJ it's how can I how, and somebody that likes to make stuff as mm-hmm. an artist um what can I do with my hands, right, to give to people? You know, it is. Yes. I would be okay with leaving lasagna. Yes, I know. On the well, p- front and
1: porch, I, and I've gotten. You know, you've done needlepoint for me. You've done crochet. Like I still have, you know, a cow scarf that I wear regularly in the winter that you made for me, and a needlepoint W or a. It's cruel work, actually. You know that you made. I mean, I have those things that you that you produce for me. That I think you're an amazing artist, and I. And I love those gifts. And every time I see those, I remember our connection. So yeah, I mean, I I get that. And those are not things that I have the,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: the skill or the craft to do, or quite honestly, the desire, but um
0: that's more important than the other <laughs> the desire, <laughs> probably. Yeah.
1: I mean, trust me, I have many, many uh, boxes of craft, en- <laughs> craft endeavors that I've undertaken. John's like, "Are we crocheting again? Are we, are we doing stamping this month? What's, <laughs> why are we buying candle making stuff? We have <laughs> candles. Why do we need more? Because <laughs> no. I need to make exactly. something. <laughs> yeah, I need to make something. He's like, just bake a cake. <laughs> Oh, okay. okay that's a good point good. creative offering creative Make,
0: offering that could be what you tell them in i know the it's a creative
1: it's a creative offering for somebody i do think i think that the idea of a creative offering is one of my favorite things about the book that your yeah. longing results in a creative offering and i hadn't thought about you know like we i host super sunday in the fall like when it's you know when it's decorative gourd season we <laughs> we you know we host this super sunday on our probably a monthly basis of like come over have soup and um and it's not about the soup as much as it is about the community so yeah yeah Yeah. so I I I think I would say that now my creative offering is community so
0: I think you are yeah exactly right you do make that offering for us we're all lucky for it thank you but it's you know the going back to what you were talking about we have to embrace the thing that hurts us in order to get to that point where we can make that offering, Right. And without right. the embrace, there's no community. Right. So, So, yeah. you know, I, and I'm, I'm going to say some things that are assuming what it is that has brought you to offering community, but you know, does it tell us that you have experienced loneliness, mm-hmm. that you have experienced isolation? Yep. Um, and that by acknowledging that those have happened to you and that it hurt you deeply, it made you capable. I, I think it's it's not just that it made you capable of, you have empowered yourself to do what will create community yeah. around you.
1: Yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, right, that's probably because that's what I want, mm-hmm. right? And so I we want to invite people into the thing that we want. Yeah. Probably.
0: So, yeah. Yeah. And we don't find that out without facing the the sticky bits. Right.
1: Yeah, the thing or the things that we that we need. The mm-hmm. longing, right? It's the yeah. longing. I long I long for deep connection. That's mm-hmm. a that's a longing that I have. Yeah. Um
0: well, I want people to experience a sense of I can be my authentic self around Kate because I've been judged for being Kate. Oh yeah. 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 You know, that makes sense. Hey, I felt this awful thing and I don't want you to have it as well.
1: Right. Yeah. And you do, you do that. Well, you do make people feel safe.
0: I'm just going to come back to what does all of this mean for people that lead?
1: I think what it means is that people that are leading it does come back to authenticity. Um, and I was watching a clip with Simon Sinek in it this morning and he was saying that leadership is not position, it's um action or something yeah. something like that. But the just the concept that um and he and he referenced a study where people, um or maybe she referenced maybe Susan Kane referenced the study hmm. where um Yeah, it was her. She was talking about angry leaders Mm. um, versus sad leaders. And they did Mm -hmm. a study where the people, students, witnessed an executive who was responding to bad financial outcomes first with anger. So, you know, a quote, angry, folded arms, furrowed brow, and then... In converse, a leader who was responding to the same or similar kind of financial outcome in the company with arms hanging down, head down, more sad. And, um, you know, people reported that the angry leader was more likely to have the ability to fire people or or leverage like negative consequences. Whereas the sad leader was more likely to, you know, have people want to follow them
0: essentially. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like you might get immediate like pain stimulus responses yes. from people. Yes. Yeah.
1: And her conclusion, I think, is not that, you know, one is better than another, that you have to walk around being sad as a leader to be effective. Yeah. I think her conclusion is that there are times when anger is appropriate and will cause people to come to action, right? Because that's the thing anger will keep you from being taken advantage of. That's the purpose of the emotion of anger is to keep yes. people from taking advantage of you or to keep you, um, from being vulnerable or being a victim. And, you know, sadness obviously, you know, drives us towards that longing. And I think her conclusion is definitely that there's a balance there. Um, I think that the society rewards angry leaders, you know, walking Mm -hmm. around yelling at people.
0: Um, yeah, we've, We've witnessed We've that. We've witnessed that quite a bit. Yes, we have witnessed that. And, and it, it doesn't breed it doesn't breed safety. It doesn't breed confidence over time. Well, and I think that that's that was the
1: Simon Sinek piece, is that you know, you can be a positional leader that people will do stuff for because you have a position of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean people want to follow you. Yeah. So I think that leaders I, I remember you and I were at a session one time and the speaker was asking you know what what's the number one thing that a leader needs what's the number one thing that a leader needs and I remember all of us are shouting out you know trust and you know all the words right Tr- they need trust they need a compelling vision they need you know mm-hmm. whatever and um good good one but not accurate good one but not accurate good one but not accurate. The number one thing that a leader needs is followers. If you don't have yeah. people following you, you're not a leader. Right. And I, and I remember <laughs> thinking like, oh God, yeah, that makes absolute sense. And so, if people are not willing to follow you, you're not a leader.
0: Yeah, there's I I found the stuff where uh, Kane is talking about pain at work. Mm-hmm. Yes, and she quotes a uh, uh, management professor that works with an organization called the compassion lab. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's an unspectacular mundane suffering that pervades the workplace, but we don't feel allowed to acknowledge that we suffer. We endure way more than we should and can because we downplay what it's actually doing to us. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I, I would kind of tongue in cheek describe that as work is killing us softly.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because we never talk about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how many workplaces have fully debriefed what happened with the pandemic. I mean, it was chaotic. And, you know, working in healthcare, we thought initially, okay, we're going to stand up this command center a couple of weeks, it'll be over. Mm-hmm you know, three years later and we're still, I'm still getting ads for and and questioning when do I get my next vaccine? I'm still wearing a mask on a plane when I travel. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, all of those things. So, and at no place that I have, I had an opportunity to say, man, that, I don't even remember what happened in 2020 and 2021. Like what, what was I doing? Right.
0: What, what happened? Where are the, yeah. Well, it's the, the shared stress. And then, You know, I think about all the individual stories. Mm -hmm. This is the first time, honestly, that I've
1: ever even kind of gone back and thought about some of that. And why? Why haven't we talked about this? I don't, that's one of the...
0: Because you keep moving forward.
1: And one of the things that I would say I have a longing for is, and I'm I'm not longing for the past, but I'm longing for a moment to talk about and process through and get, closure or movement on what happened Mm -hmm. and I, I don't know, I don't know how to do that. Well, you know,
0: so I think unfortunately, because that is not, that is not a cultural habit. We have no muscle around that, at least living in North America in the 21st century having the privilege of being upper middle class white people. Um, we have, we have no discipline there. And if we were to start now, think about how far back we would actually have. to. I come. know. So, you know, the rise in civility, yes. that spike that has not gone away. Right. That we saw hitting headlines in 2021. Um, the the absolute dumpster fire of race relations right. in the states that reached ahead that has not come clean yet right in 2020 those all have beginnings really far back and if if the intent is to do like a personal root cause analysis if you will mm-hmm. the things that hurt us today as a society and as individuals go so far back we would lose time and we don't tolerate the loss of time very well which we could probably connect to the whole like sense of impermanence and fear of dying however in the states it's that time is money so we're being driven by we must produce we must produce but I think you're talking about something that could heal us all if we could just say, I hurt right now.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And and I think there's value in root cause analysis. I think there's value in anthropology and the study of Mm -hmm. how the past affects the present and could affect the future. I think there's more value in saying... Whenever it happened, whatever happened, I hurt right now. Yeah. And I need, I long for something because of
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. And and
1: asking ourselves
0: reasonably, what would it take for me to heal today?
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Because it's the longing that brings the healing or the acknowledgement of the longing. Yeah. Maybe.
0: I think I I would agree. I think acknowledging the fact that I have pain is then... The moment where you can treat the pain. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I was thinking of that because, yeah, yeah, until you can say, yeah, it hurts bad enough that Mm -hmm. I need something.
0: Well, you know, lady that just had the emergency appendectomy. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. If you had not acknowledged that pain, what would have happened? Right.
1: Right. Well, unpleasantness. I I don't know what would have happened. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm. I'm sure there are some people that are like, I'll just power through and they end up with a ruptured appendix. I was not one of those people. Yeah. I was like, well, that hurts really bad. And it's all on the right side. That's got to mean something. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. And it did. I mean, who gets appendicitis at 53? But apparently I do. I save all the childhood illness or the young adult illnesses. I got mono at 40. So, you yeah. know. Well, I
0: got it. I got hand, foot, and mouth oh, two years ago. Okay.
1: All right. So you get toddler illnesses in adulthood. Yeah, right. All right. <laughs> I haven't had any toddler illnesses for a while,
0: but. I think that's just more proof that I'm basically a five-year-old. Exactly. That's exactly. Yes, that is. Bring wow. me my Bring me my fruit snacks. Is... Seriously. Let me have a nap. Get me some
1: applesauce. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> just like a...
0: gosh. I didn't know that,
1: but geez.
0: Yeah. All right. So, what else? Um, what did you find most challenging about not not just the the book, but the whole living a bittersweet life? Um, I I hate to say this, but I think
1: the thing that always challenges me when I read books like this is the self indulgent. That's mm. the that is what I find challenging about um books like this. You know, this this genre of like um self-examination and and even like societal examination about where we are is um is this indulgent should I just get back to work right
0: (laughs) (laughs) am I navel gazing (laughs) or uh, am I or am I like
1: enriching my life right and I and I don't even know why I don't even know why that's a part of it but it's definitely you know as I'm as I'm like reading her words and thinking you know fine Susan but really like should we do we really need to spend time on this and I believe it in the front of my mind I believe it yeah but there's that that background voice and I do think as we talked about in our warm-up like this Gen X philosophy of like I mean just get it together just get to work get some stuff
0: done there is a little bit of that like it's so again self-reflection is is a necessary healthy part of life Mm -hmm. but if it overshadows and you spend all of your time self-reflecting to the exclusion of everything else, that's not good. Right. I mean, it is fundamentally a bad way to live your life.
1: Right. And I think I hit that point about three-fourths of the way through the book where, and I, and that's probably the right timing, right, of like, uh-huh. it's a, you know, it's a standard kind of business or, or psychology kind of book of how many ever pages and about, you know, 75% of the way through you're like, hmm have I had enough? Like, should I just move on? And (laughs) or should I take action now? Is is this the time when there should be some action or moving forward? That's probably what challenges me is. Mm -hmm. And I if I'm being honest, it's probably that I would grow more if I had the patience to sit in it a little longer. I'm not somebody that I think is ever going to get accused of like, she's just constantly self reflecting. I think it's more of like a I don't do, I don't quite finish. I don't quite get it done. Well,
0: and we're talking about like embracing sadness. Right. Here, like coming to peace with the sorrow in our lives. That's not fun. Right. So the that friction, that discomfort that you could feel, some of it may come from the, I don't want to be self-indulgent. I don't want to spend all my time like picking at my wounds. Mm-hmm. But it could also come from, oh, you're pressing on a bruise and that hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I'm not advocating pressing on bruises right. by any sense. Please don't. But it's so, it, you know, we we started our time together talking about the death of a pet. Yes. Um, and the way I talked about losing my 16-year-old cat unexpectedly was you know the day a few days after it was like it's kind of like a bruise it's a sore spot that i'm sort of aware of Mm -hmm. but if i don't touch it it's okay right and you know in the big big scheme of things losing a pet is a small deal in my day-to-day it's a really significant loss right right and the issue isn't that i'm grieving a pet the issue could be that i don't process my grief and it just shows up other places. Yes. And do I lean into the hurt and let myself have a healthy grieving process? or do I feel a little uncomfortable and stop?
1: Right? And then if you do feel uncomfortable and stop because this is true of all of our wounds from the, you know birth to current situation, mm-hmm. if we don't address those wounds or at least acknowledge them, let them have their life and, and move on from them mm-hmm. they will show up in our in our life in other ways that yeah. are probably not that positive no and I think that's the leadership lesson is yeah you know I did you watch Ted Lasso yes okay
0: oh we need to do we do <laughs> we need to sit down in the chairs again we do and have like a whole series on Ted Lasso 100 <laughs> percent
1: oh I you know I watch I a lot of true crime a lot of like dark stuff and i just think (laughs) where has ted lasso been all my life like i'm just so happy about it but um the the third season when rebecca who is ted lasso's boss the you know blonde woman she goes in they're gonna try to get her to sign as the woman on the this additional like international Mm -hmm. football league or whatever and she looks around the table at all of these men and she is like, what is wrong with you? And immediately it flashes to all of them being little boys. Yeah. And it was so profound for me because I thought I do that now. I do that thing where when I look at someone, especially a leader that I'm having a difficult time with, I turn my head a little bit and think there's a little boy in there. There's a little girl in there that mm-hmm. got hurt really badly and they haven't dealt with it. And that's why this behavior is coming out. hmm and i can be more compassionate that way and less judgy i mean i i try really hard not to judge but i'm judgy as much as anybody else you're human <laughs> you're human, human exactly but when i when i force myself to say at 8 years old what happened to you right mm-hmm. what happened
0: to you that is causing this well and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be something like abuse right. or a big trauma it could be you got kicked on the playground yeah. and you were told to like just dust it off. Exactly. Yeah. And you learned a lesson that you don't deal with day-to-day yeah. injuries. Exactly. And so you're not patient with people that are hurting. And exactly. That's a, you know, an extreme case but you're right. It's we learn things when we're little. Yeah. But, you know, Kane talks about that. Yes. She talks about acceptance um and compassion. I think it's is that right? Acceptance and compassion yes. therapy? Yes. Yes. And you know, according to the tenets of that practice, there's some stuff you may never get rid of. It may be the thing, regardless of years and years of work, that you bear with you. Right. But at least you have awareness of it. Right. Exactly. So that when you are your cranky eight-year-old self in the yeah. boardroom, you can stop for a moment. Right.
1: Well, and I, I mean, I bring that to my, to myself sometimes, and I think, what what is making me anxious in this situation with this leader? What's making me mm-hmm. feel like I want to lash out or tell this person off or, or retreat into myself. What is causing that? What, what, w- what about, you know, eight year old Michelle is like, is not feeling good about this. I think that's an important exercise to do. And, mm-hmm. and that, and Ted Lasso, like I, I remember watching that scene and thinking, yep, that's, that's exactly the way she should
0: respond. And you're talking about, I think is a foundational, like, core. It's one of the places where leadership starts. Yes, you have to have followers. But if you can't look at yourself first. Mm-hmm. Yep. Everything that we're talking about here, the embracing sorrow, the acknowledging that you have hurt, the looking for those sweet moments as well. If you can't do that as a leader, you have no hope right guiding other people through it right because I think that's the lesson in bittersweet for leaders is what is what is the thing that hurts me have I embraced that I'm a little sad sometimes Mm -hmm. and you may not be as sad as the next leader that's okay you don't have to manufacture poignancy and melancholy in yourself but do you acknowledge it and then do you you look for the science in your people
1: right and if you're a leader that led through a global pandemic how can you not be sad it was a sad time it was right i mean we lost colleagues we mm-hmm. lost friends we may have lost our business yeah or it may have been altered drastically i mean yeah. of course that's there's sadness there so not acknowledging that as a leader is is going to be problematic For people.
0: Very problematic. We're not the same as we were three years ago. No. Uh, I was talking with somebody that works in higher ed the Mm. other day. And, you know, the the freshmen that are showing up this year, Mm. they're 18-year-olds who have 16-year-old minds. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because they lost two years. Mm -hmm. Right. And being able to guide youth through that. I can't even imagine the challenge. I can't either. And I folks in academia right now. And I have two, you know, two of
1: my family members, my husband and my oldest son are both teachers, high school Mm -hmm. and um, junior high respectively. And um, they, they're dealing with a whole new level. You know, my husband has taught juniors and seniors for three decades. Right. Ages. But they're not the same. Mm-mm. They're not the same, and and they have been the same. You know, a junior and a senior have been the same, and they're not anymore. And same with like junior high. It's just a whole different level, of um, and and the the civil incivility or the incivility. <laughs> <laughs> it's civil, but it's not. It's, <laughs> it's, yes, the civil inciv- the, Yeah, the in, the incivility <laughs> that we're talking about, um, ha- largely has come at least you know, in the, in the school realm is this anti, you know, social, emotional learning and, and, you know, don't teach our kids, you know, parents have to teach kids, you know, just teach academics. Well, kids need social and emotional learning in the school environment. They just do. And, yeah. um, and it's, and so, there's this need to have it and then the adults in the equation are like fighting each other on it and that's a whole that's adding a whole other level to the children in the situation because if your parent is for social social emotional learning in the classroom you know you're on one side and then if your parent is against it because you're kind of you know by extension you're adopting your parents thoughts or or you're fighting against them right so the so the the children are now involved in this weird political thing that they shouldn't even be involved in sins of the father sins of the father exactly so crazy you know i am self-professed not a sports competitive person and i you know when i would watch my daughter play soccer and the other goalie would make a good stop i would be like good job goalkeeping my daughter would say what that's the other team like we don't root (laughs) for the other team And I think we need to root more for the other team. I just, I just think we do like it's a, you did a good job, right? You did a good job and somebody, and I do think that behind the scenes, probably the players themselves in most sport events, they do, they do acknowledge that I, I did my job. They did their job. Mm -hmm. I got paid for doing my job. They got paid for doing, maybe they won. So they got paid more, like they had a better outcome. So they got the bonus that I didn't get. Yeah. You know, if you think about a leadership perspective, but, at the end of the day, everybody did a good job, right?
0: Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it would be, it, it would, think about how much different the world would be if, even if we still quote unquote battled, you know, whether on the field, in the boardroom, in the community, if at the end of the day we could say, you know, good game.
1: Right. Exactly. And I think that by and large, I think the players genuinely do like th- mm-hmm. the front level, like like the front line, the people on the field and the people on the bench. I think they do do that. I, I think mm-hmm. I think what we see, the owners and the and the coaches have to they have to take it to that next level. And I think that's where executive leadership, you know, we're we live in this community where there's competitive nature among the healthcare systems. Right. Yeah. I think the executives feel that they talk about it and what they're in the market share and who's yeah, getting this. But on the
0: front line, but at the front line, you're a nurse, I'm a nurse, you're a tech, I'm a tech. You've probably like flipped back and forth I, between the various systems. You probably
1: have. And if you and I and you if, went to
0: school with people that work yes, at the other hospital, yeah, exactly. yeah, you don't care.
1: You don't care. And if, and if you and I, you know, if, if I'm a nurse and you're a nurse and I'm a red system and you're a blue system and we both end up on a plane together and su- or wherever we end up anywhere where there's a, medical crisis we're on the same team then we're trying to help yep. this person right yep and i think that that's where leaders should spend more time with the front line and say how do you feel about the competition yeah right Or
0: well that's why do we even focus on the competition i know exactly i think that's, I think that's such a flawed mindset to yeah begin with. i agree because i it, agree you know no how do you feel about your environment mm-hmm. what exactly what's missing from what you have here how can we make this the best place for you to work right yeah we'll we'll take a look at how the quote-unquote competition is doing but right we're not going to spend our time on the competition right we're going to spend the time on our own performance
1: yes yes better yeah
0: and I think you know if I this may be uh, stretching a little bit just to keep things you know on point but leaders who lead by looking out mm-hmm as opposed to in, what is it that they're longing for?
1: Mm, yes.
0: You know, what are they not, not letting themselves feel right. grief or or, right. or poignancy regarding?
1: No, I think that's a good question. And I think in terms of, you know, do we inherit the grief, the longing I think that happens in companies. Mm-hmm. I think that happens because, I mean, you talk about inheriting a team. Like, this isn't the team I built. This is the team I inherited. Oh, yeah. um, and so I do think there is inheriting when new leaders come in. And, and you may be the bright, shiny penny that comes in from the outside of an organization and everybody mm-hmm. thinks you're going to, you know, take over the world. And I think that's that's one of the things about Ted Lasso. I love and also you know, is a little bit challenging because he was the the underdog that like you've never, you you didn't work in this industry, so to speak. Like mm-hmm. we, you know, we hear, well, they don't have any XYZ experience. How can they be any good at this? Well, he didn't have soccer experience or, you know, European football experience or whatever. <laughs> he didn't have that experience, but he was this amazing leader despite his anxiety disorder and all of that. And you know, some of that, because he went from worst to first, was a little contrived, you know, yeah. over three seasons. And when Trent Krim hands him the manuscript at the end and he says, hey, great, loved it, Change the title. It's not about me and never was. That's leadership, right?
0: Yeah. We'll pause here and conclude the series in the next episode. Until then, I want to invite you to think about what you believe great leadership looks like. Do you agree with Michelle? Is it ultimately not about the leader? Or does it take an entirely different form in your experience? I would love to hear your thoughts. I'll see you next time in the comfy chairs.